Hey everybody, this is Sean McVeigh and welcome to the Vet Med Mind. What is the Vet Med Mind? It's a podcast that we're doing here at Veterinary Growth Partners, celebrating success stories in veterinary medicine. I'm joined by Rachel Tashberg. You've certainly heard her speak or lecture at some of our conferences. So together and with other guests, we're going to explore in veterinary medicine, both current, past, and maybe even future uh, success stories. Hi, everyone. I am so thrilled today to be hosting somebody on the other side of the planet. Uh, Sean and I have Dr. Shalzi Vigent here today joining us from New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Well, g- good evening here. Good morning to you. Right. Actually true. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like 15 hours difference ahead of us. Yeah. It, it, it depends on um, where we like are. Savings too. Anywhere from 14 to 16, it's spread out. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. It's winding down bedtime here and you're just getting started with your day. So as you know, our podcast is really focused on success stories in veterinary medicine. The impetus of this podcast was so that, you know, Rachel and I have spent our careers essentially talking about the need for mental health and self-care in veterinary medicine. Uh, from the perspective of trying to be a fully competent and participating team member and deliver a product to the clients that that is consistent and something that we can charge for and not feel upset about it. And as we continue to dig into this, we find that success stories are often about people facing personal obstacles and overcoming them. I did watch your TED talk. It's called uh, a beastly business. Uh, and uh, it, it was, you know, many things that we've been discussing in our own way, shape and form through veterinary growth partners. Uh, so thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, I look forward you're to hearing welcome. from you. I was so moved by your TED talk. And just so everyone who's listening knows, the link will be in the podcast description because it is definitely worth watching. Um, almost tears in my eyes at the end. There was a moment where you got emotional. And even I now am like getting emotional thinking about the emotions um, because it's a lot. And um, you know, you you gave a really powerful message about the state of our industry and also the future of our industry. Um, and like Sean said, we talk about it all the time and I just think that the the way the picture that you painted for the world at large about what's really happening within our tightly knit community that's often sheltered, you know, people don't get to see what happens behind our curtain um, was just really brave. And I'm glad that you went on stage and it was awesome. So. I can't wait for everybody to, to see it. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. We'll kind of get into more about some of those points. Um, but I'd love to first start with your origin story. So you live in New Zealand now, but you're originally from the States. So tell us a little bit about your past and how you ended up where you are now. Um, so we, uh, uh, yes, from the States, we moved around quite a bit, but I would definitely call Louisiana home. That's where I settled. That's where I did my undergrad and my grad school at LSU, Louisiana State University. And went to vet school at Ross University, which is in St. Kitts in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, and you finish up in a state school. So I ended up in Auburn, which was very difficult for my college football fandom. Um, uh, yeah. That was very yeah, hard. The Tigers are pretty loyal people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, both of them. Exactly. It was pretty hard. Um, so and then after that, um, I, it, it's interesting because I think probably I, without even realizing it, well-being for me probably started way back then because I wanted to pick a job, my first job that I actually was able to stay in longer than a year because we historically graduate, work our first year and are miserable and have to go find something new. And I was like, no, I'm picking the right job the first time. And I want to stay two years. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found an amazing job with some wonderful people and amazing mentors from different, different areas of life, I think I could say. And then from there, I got married and moved up to the Northeast and worked up there for a bit where it is way too cold for me. Um, And then still very, very close with that family, actually. Yeah, you're looking but at when, an Austinite and a Miami lady. So we we like the South and the heat. <laughs> yes. And when, when we split up, I actually you know talked to the entire family because I was like, I need to move. I can't. This is too cold for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was initially looking in Southern California, Arizona, because, you know, the heat um, mm-hmm. and thought, I have two chihuahuas. That's like all I have really that I have to be responsible for. I could go anywhere in the world. Where do I want to live? And um, I wanted to live in New Zealand. So mm-hmm. I, I looked and found a job and I actually didn't end up coming here doing emergency medicine, which is what I've done. We talked about that most of my, the majority of my life. Um, 
I came, I took a job being a manager of the SBCA here um, in their Auckland SBCA. The SBCA is very big in New Zealand in general, mm-hmm. and the Auckland one is one of the largest branches. And so I came over here and um, that was a bit of a wake up call, but it was, but it was good. And so, you know, I said that I had, a, I think all people, I think all veterinarians should work in the shelter for a certain period of time, but I think there should be a time limit on that for what they mm-hmm. have to do. With um, and so I said, I'd give three to five years and at five years, I came back to emergency medicine. Wow. What I do. And what is your, I mean, you're an emergency veterinarian. Uh, tell us a little bit about your ownership history. Like, are you employed? Do you own your practice? You know, how, have, what kind of progression yep. have you had relative to operations in vet medicine? It's actually pretty funny. Progression wise, I started cleaning kennels. So when I was 15, I started cleaning kennels. So I, <laughs> I was a nurse. So I was a vet nurse for 10 years before I went to vet school. So I think that's probably why a lot of my passion lies with our nurses and our new graduates, because I was that for so long. Um, but I honestly had no desire whatsoever to ever own a clinic, ever. I want. I did not want that headache. I love what we do. I love this profession, but I love being a vet. That's mm-hmm. the part of it I love, which is what we all love, right? Um, I had no desire to be a business Except owner. Except for those of us I, that try and manage you all. We, we don't like that part. <laughs> exactly. That's why I had no desire for that. But I, um, I ended up, I worked at all the emergency clinics around Auckland to see where I fit and which one I thought I needed to be at. And the one I've settled on where I now own and I'm part director um, is Animal Emergency Center here in Auckland. And so I started working here and the opportunity came up to buy one of the original directors out. And I fit really well, as in I don't just pers- like professionally respect the other business directors. I actually like them as humans, which is, I think, pretty amazing opportunity. So I bought in. So yeah. now I own Amazing. Yeah, that's I'm a proponent of uh, veterinarians buying in whenever and however they can. I think there's there's something uh, there's something powerful in having some skin in the game and owning something and, and, and being able to. It's one of the few professions where you can make your life's dreams happen through your work <laughs> uh, it, so it, if you're why, passionate yeah. about as you are about medicine so to to be able to sometimes if you're passionate about medicine and you don't own the clinic you can be thwarted you know by yeah. by the people that run the practice yeah. yep so i was wondering so you had this really great experience leading up like your entire career even before vet school was in vet med so did you feel like you really understood the sort of mental health side of the industry prior to vet school, or did that come as a surprise once you were on the other side of it? I think yes and no. I think I always saw it. And I think maybe I I do. I've actually thought about this doing some talks after the TED talk because I think I probably was more prepared, but I think I didn't struggle the way some people in our profession do. And I still don't struggle the way some people in our profession do. And it's, I so that part I wasn't prepared for and didn't understand because in my head I don't know why I do now but I didn't know why anyone could find it hard because mm-hmm. what we do is so amazing but I do believe a lot of that was personality traits not necessarily what this profession is um because you're an outlier then probably in terms I, of I abs- yes I extrovert who is a people person yes and that's and and I believe that I never I think probably the way I was raised and my personality, I would have never, I, I believe that, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, the public is one of our major issues um, for a lot of reasons. And I never had a problem dealing with people or even people who were angry or mean to me because mm-hmm. that's just not acceptable behavior as my personality type. So I think for me, I think I was prepared. I think I saw, I literally grew up with it from 15 years old till now. Like it's just, mm-hmm. I've no. so I do think, I was prepared and understood more than a lot of people who come into the profession originally, you know, just as a, just as a veterinarian and no history in it. But I do think personally, from a personality perspective, I think I was a bit more prepared to handle some of those things. And one thing I actually noticed already, just from talking to you for these few minutes, is it, you have a really nice way of setting up some boundaries. Like you said, I don't like the cold. I'm leaving this place. <laughs> like you, you gave it up. You, you wanted, you shopped around a different shop around is like the bad word, but you know, you tested out the different yeah. practices to find the right fit that you have a good sense. It seems like of your values. Like you were able to buy into a practice that yes, you have respect for the people, but you like the people. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes a lot of that stuff is taken for granted or people feel like they are forced into decisions or have to say yes, even if they're not all in. 
Uh, well, I, I'm actually really glad you said that because I think someone probably changed my life in the sense of this. And Dr. Jim Wilson, he was a veterinarian. I love Jim. <laughs> yeah, he became a lawyer because we had no law protection in this profession and no one did. And he used to come to Ross University at the seventh semester and talk to the seventh semester students. And he said something that floored me. And I hope every veterinarian, and I say this to every young graduate that I work with, he said, you need to remember when you're going for an interview, you know, we, we want this job. We feel like we have to take the job. We're, just like you just said, before we have to do what we, you know, we need a job. We're going to graduate. Who would take us? We're brand new. He was like, they need you as much as you need them. Why are you not interviewing them? What are they giving to you? How are they going to help you grow? How are they? And that has stuck with me my entire career because we need each other. It's I'm bringing you something good too. Um, and even our new grads who are new grads and inexperienced, they still have something that we need in this profession. Um, well, like some energy, enthusiasm, and young, young, young legs. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. So and new science. I, think, I, I don't think I realized at the time how impactful. I, I mean, I guess I did because I'd never thought about it that way. But that has stuck with me my entire career. For sure. Do you feel like vet school when you were in school? Was there talk about the the side of the industry, the emotional components? No, never. And that's, I just had a talk about this the other day. Never. And I do believe that schools are starting to change that. I do believe they understand um, the impact now. Who doesn't now? Um, But no, this was never like, we never discussed euthanasia, which is one of the massive things we do that cause it like one of the biggest issues in our profession. And we never discussed it. You never, there's no counseling for, or, or training for how you deal with grieving people that no, none of this has ever gone over in vet school. Wow. Do you think that we talk about the definition of success enough in early, in early formation of people's veterinary careers? In other words, my experience, when I look at, I kind of cut my teeth managing specialists, which is a whole different kind of, but and Rachel as well, but so often they were just completely driven by, by science and achievement and, and checking off the next thing that has to be done and being right but completely disconnected from their emotional self. I guess what I'm looking for is what is, you said it a little bit, but was it your family or are we picking the wrong kind of people for veterinary medicine? How do we get this message out there that unless you work on your own personal resiliency and personal development, you're going to be miserable as a veterinarian? I think a one, that message, I think we're not realizing like, this is an amazing profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there is nothing that can take that away. Like we work with animals every day. There, it, it, for those of us who go into this profession, there's nothing better than that. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are all kind of bad things to it, but this profession should never be easy. We make decisions that end lives or extend lives. We make decisions about family members, literally. So why this profession will never be easy. There should be stressors and it should be hard. It should be difficult because there is a lot of weight and responsibility on our shoulder. It is still amazing. So that means I do, I absolutely do not believe we are preparing the people. You mentioned that, you know, or is, are we not starting in the beginning? We are not preparing the people who are coming into this profession for what it is. There's nothing wrong with what it is, but we're not preparing them for what it is. And the other thing, 50-50, what you just said is happiness starts within us. Happiness is a choice. If I am miserable in this job, I am probably going to be miserable in another job and the job after that and the job after that. Happiness is up to me. And I I gave a talk a while back. It was last year, actually. And I said, and it was a little controversial for me to say at the time. And I said it anyway. I said, your well-being is not the responsibility of this profession. Girl, I say that all the time. I literally say to people, it is not our job to make you happy. It's our job to make a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our, 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 our... you're getting to the crux of the of the kind of the matter here, because I, I think that's the message for all of our people that are listening, is that success is not a thing. It's a journey. And, and part of that, like if you, it's almost like cart before the horse, you can go after all the money or you can go after the professional accolades of I'm the best surgeon ever, or you can have the biggest practice uh, with the with the wealthiest clients and all of that. But it, it doesn't change the, 
or reset the internal meter that isn't right in the first place. And what I've found is that veterinary medicine and the stress of working in a veterinary clinic, all the things that you alluded to, tend to bring out the unhealed parts of people. And so you said you noticed it when you got in the clinic, like you don't struggle with it personally, but you noticed it. How have you dealt with that? Like in your own staff, in your own hospital, how do you, how do you address this elephant in the room of mental health? We think it's about honesty. Okay. So, you know, everybody says that's easy, right? Be honest, but saying things that are upsetting or hard to hear or things you disagree with, being honest is actually pretty hard sometimes. Um, and you might have a veterinarian who is absolutely amazing technically, but they cannot deal with euthanasia or an angry client or, or, or a staff member, a nurse who's not as qualified. So mm-hmm. there's in telling them, calling attention to that, what we do is humbling. And for a lot of very smart, science-driven A-type personalities, that's hard to do. But if we grow, to continue to grow in this profession, you have to be humbled regularly. Humbled by a brand new nurse who does a technique you never saw and thought, Mm -hmm. wow, I should do that. Not where did you learn that? Why are you doing it that way? So I think it's very humbling. um, And I think we don't, that's not a comfortable spot. So I think being honest about, you know, what are we, what are we unhappy about? What are you angry about? What are, what's making you miserable when you go home every night and actually being honest, because the answer might not be your job. The answer, like we just said, might be within your heart. So I think it really boils down to being honest, what you're going through or why you're going through it or why you're unhappy. Do you think the answer is we need to get in the clinics and just keep preaching this message to existing and new staff or because my experience is every time I start to talk about we start to talk about mental health with people. We're good messengers and VGP is all about that. And so people get these light bulb moments and they have transformations. And I'm sure you've experienced that with your own staff as you try to develop them. However, I'm still shocked that like 30 years later now, since I've been doing this in the early 90s, that we're still talking about we have to address this. We were talking about that in 1993. We need to address mental health issues. We need to address uh, suicide rates. We need so. Do you have any insight as, because I'm not a veterinarian and I'm a little more removed from academia, but what is the missing link? Everybody knows that this needs to be addressed, but it's kind of not happening. Do we need to fundamentally overhaul the school system or what is it? Well, I think it's not one link. That's the problem. We want, because we're scientists and we want to fix it. We want the problem to fix, but the problem is multi-pronged or multifaceted. Like we need to, like you just said, uh, and of course, this is only my personal opinion. I think there are experts who probably have, you know, opinions on what else is beneficial for this. But first, well, it's a podcast, so we get to talk about opinions. <laughs> <laughs> um, from the get go, vet schools, absolutely. Who are we letting in? Which they are just addressing. Like that, you know, it used to be you had to have a 4.0. It didn't matter if you'd ever worked on an animal before. It didn't matter if you had any communication skills you could get into vet school. And so they're already adjusting it, but not even just that, not even only who you're letting in, what you're preparing them for while they're in there. Are you preparing them for this profession? Because it's not just mm-hmm. science. And I, you know, I personally don't know that I believe, I mean, there's all different programs at veterinary schools. You know, some of them are five years, some of them you have to have a degree beforehand. I think it is, I think the hard part is it probably needs to be more than what we're giving and for that preparation, because you do need grief counseling and anger management and all of those things rolled into that because it's what we do. Um, so I think from that level, but I also think, I think the public play a massive role in this. And I think their knowledge and um, understanding of what we do, the costs of veterinary care, I think is huge because mm-hmm. if you didn't have to deal with people, there's many veterinarians who would be happier, but we do have to do with, deal with people. So what are we doing to make that more manageable? Rachel and I talk about how every other business out there, like the Ritz-Carlton or McDonald's or or um, you know your local baker or whatever, you know they, they all go to great lengths to try and prep the employees for the experience that they want the client to have. Mm-hmm. And it, it involves treating people this way, talking to people this way. And it seems that our profession, our professionals are still a bit resistant to having to bend to that, that it's it's like, it's almost an insult, like that you're asking me to pay attention to this when I'm supposed to be here for medicine. And I, and I uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Or is that accurate? Or well, I think that's probably, I think you could probably even split that into two. Yes, I do think, why am I having to deal with clients in a sense? I, but I, on the other hand, I believe that to a certain extent, it's also come to the point or has previously come to the point of, well, that client wasn't happy, so we need to do something. 
they're complaining, so we need to fix it. They're, mm-hmm. you know, but where we've realized that we are in a time where we may not have done anything wrong. And you going and to some people media, will never be happy. <laughs> yes. And you cursing at our staff and screaming and then going to social media to talk about it isn't acceptable. You can't come here. I don't need your money that bad. I don't need Absolutely. your business. You know, and there, we don't there is, do I say now. things haven't changed. There was an old school adage where we used to say back in the 90s, like the client is always right. The client is always right. The mm-hmm. client is always right. And what yeah. we know now, and you've spoken to eloquently, is that we have to have boundaries. And for those of you that don't know what boundaries are, boundaries are really about protecting your personal value system, protecting your health, protecting your mental health, not letting people take advantage of your time, your money, your intellect, your spirit, your soul. So somebody else's need does not translate to you having to give away yourself to fix that need. And I I think a lot of people called to the helping profession misunderstand the calling a bit. It's not because there's nothing left to give away (laughs) if you just keep giving and giving and giving and giving. And so, uh, but I think you have to, and I think this is where business owners, um, they play a big role in this because like you just said, you know, you get in a job and you're miserable. Well, you have a choice to not be miserable. You have a choice to either stand up and attempt to make a change and be part of a change or walk away. Mm -hmm. So, and I think I, how I feel about nurses and young staff is probably what drove me. Clients are not allowed to treat my staff disrespectfully. My my staff is not allowed to treat clients disrespectfully. You, like you will always be professional and kind, but that requirement is straight back to them. And mm-hmm. I have no problem explaining very kindly and honestly, but very clearly to a client if they've behaved a certain way. That's you, you'll have to take your animal somewhere else. And we're finding in this profession now that people are going to have to stop that because you can't take your animal just anywhere else at the rate we're going. That's exactly right. That's um, exactly yeah. right. You spoke in your TED talk about, and we'd be remiss if we didn't, about uh recidivism rate, burnout, suicide, yeah. um uh, uh, retention rates in hospitals uh, for our employees, you know, in the United States, average turnover in a veterinary hospital is 35% per annum uh, amongst non-veterinary employees, you know, so we're always dealing in this crisis of retraining, retraining, retraining. And so, so I guess I hear, we hear a lot from people in the States about we're suffering from burnout, we're suffering from compassion fatigue. And I often try to reframe that and say, while I believe that compassion fatigue is real, and I believe that burnout is absolutely real, I think mostly we're struggling with poor mental health and and, and poor interpersonal coping skills. Yes. And so I do, do you agree with that? And what it maybe you can review just kind of your thoughts on why this is happening in our profession. Well, I, I, Ashton Kutcher made a quote once that I heard, and I hate to say this because I, I need to clarify afterwards, but he said, you don't burn out doing the things you love. Preach. And I actually believe that because it, when people are like, oh, but I love being a vet and I am burned out and that can happen, but you're not burned out because you're doing something you love. You're burned out because you're doing a bunch of things you're not comfortable with. You're tolerating some stuff you don't like. Yeah, exactly. And there, I'm not saying that every, like I said before, this, not every decision or day is going to be easy in our profession. It shouldn't be. It's hard. But being things being hard doesn't mean you're unhappy. Euthanasia is never easy, but I can still be very comfortable making decisions to euthanize a pet for the right reasons. So I think that we're burnt out, like you just said. We're not burnt out because our profession is so horrendous. There are things that need to be fixed unquestionably, but we're burnt out because you're not happy. It's such a tricky thing, right? Because this industry drives people who are so deeply passionate and that's where that lack of boundary comes from right it's like Sorry, i think need. it's codependency too <laughs> yeah well sure but it, it's just one of those things where you know we it, and you see it happen over and over and over again right it's we're constantly sacrificing ourselves for the good of the pet and all of that is totally legitimate to a point right and and we have to start having process protocols we have to be able to call other people ask for help that's the other thing too right there's so much yep competition and walls between practices that are within the same communities, even that are so afraid. I think, and maybe that's part of it. There's so much fear, fear of a bad review, fear of losing a client, fear of not making enough money, fear of losing an employee. There's so much fear that we are just paralyzed. And all we can do is work, 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 work. And I wonder, I'm curious, actually, now you said that you've been in New Zealand for about nine, 10 years or so. 
Do you see any difference culturally in how the U.S. and people who live here handle, manage, things like that? Um, Yes. Yes and no. Um, The New Zealand in general has an extremely, extremely different standpoint on a work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is standard four-week annual leave here. That's required by law. So four weeks and you'll leave. So there are many companies who, you know, we reward ourselves in time or money, basically. Um, There are many companies here who people have longer than four weeks allotted each year for annual leave. I mean, annual, literally it's four, and I was like, four weeks, (laughs) holy moly. And so New Zealand is already in a sense, um, what what is work-life balance to them is very different. And I'm going to say this because I don't know what other words to use other than work ethic, but it's not work ethic because there are, uh, it's not how hard they work by any it's, means. Yeah, work ethic sounds judgmental to, to yeah, say. Yeah, but, but I haven't, and I have thought about this a lot. I can't come up with, I don't know what other term it is, but they work to live. We mm-hmm. live to work. And, and, and veterinarians, like you had said, in, in a sense, we do live to work too. But mm-hmm. but here, that is not, the overall attitude is um, we work just to have a life and that's it. And so, and they are very, far past us on the addressing of the mental health issues. You know, there are mental health issues. We will talk about them. We will try and figure out how we fix them. There is help. So they are ahead of us in that sense in the U.S. So I do think that makes a difference. So you can, I know you can come to an Australian practice manager or a Kiwi practice manager and say, I'm feeling depressed. I need to go see a therapist. I need some time off. Yep. And that will be held in confidence. <laughs> And yep. you get to go have your time off. Yeah, I had never, you know, it never would have thought of stress that there was a, such a thing as stress lead in the U.S. ever, whereas it does happen here. So and I mean, obviously, I think there's balances and all of that. But I think that it is much more recognized that there are things in life that are a bit more important than work here. And that's not really recognized in the U.S., mm-hmm. to be honest. I think that it's interesting. A lot of the practices I work with one on one and consulting um a lot of them had, I think this, uh, and I think I can speak for our whole team, an epiphany about that over the last couple of years. I think that the pandemic has really drastically changed perspective for a lot of people and realigned some priorities um, because of the extremes. I, I mean, we were already sort of at an extreme and then it was like, oh, I'm going to push you off the ledge now with all the craziness that's going on. And so I think a lot of people had um, a serious moment of realization of what do I really want? What do I really need? Is this it for me? Um, and a lot of, a lot of choices and changes were being made during that time, whether it's decreasing hours, even when the need was so high, it was like, we can't anymore. Like we have officially strung ourselves out too much. Um, now my question is you had mentioned the difference between, you know, the culture in New Zealand versus the U S do you find that I know that you guys have a huge shortage of veterinarians, but do you still have that same high turnover rate from technicians? Do you feel like the industry overall is struggling to the same degree? Like where, you know, we are just trying to basically take people off the street and make anybody a CSR. And um, is that, is it that dire over there as well? Yeah, I think it is everywhere. I think low yeah. friends, you know, globally who we talk about this often. And I think from it's a bit hard from an emergency perspective because our turnover is always higher and it always will be because not everyone is made for emergency long term. So, you know, most people will do emergency for two to four years and that's about it. So that turnover is high, even if it's a great practice and you're a great veterinarian and the, the work is wonderful. So that it's hard for me in that sense, but I think globally everywhere, there is not, and, and the thing is, it's not just vets, this is nurses too. We don't have enough or any you know customer service, CSRs, like you said, we don't have any paraprofessionals um, or vets in the world. We don't have enough of them for the level of work we have. So do I think the term, the turnover rate, I do feel in the last few years, even it has increased in general because we're realizing, like you just said, oh, I don't have to do this or am I happy doing this? Or if I'm not, why not? What is your what is your panacea? What is your prescription, if you will, for the industry to deal with? And we've talked about the burnout, the suicide rate. I, I don't think that we can be responsible for all that, but we can respond to it. And yeah. so the 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 burnout rate, the turnover rate, the 50% of veterinarians saying they wouldn't recommend, like, how do we turn the profession around from your perspective? What is there, you, is there I think two or three I things mean, we need to focus on? 
Well, yeah. And I mean, obviously my big soapboxes are preparation for what you're getting into and what you're about to go into and how the public knowledge is. But there's other sides of it that I do think that aren't my passion that do need to be affected. Like mm-hmm. why? And some of that is why, why do we not pay our staff? Why, why do veterinarians not get paid? Vet nurses not get paid for the training they do and the time that they spend comparable to nursing. Why, why is why is that? Um, and when you find out the why, change it. And if it's because, well, we don't make enough in our practices, well, why aren't you charging enough? Well, people won't pay it. Well, then they don't come. But then, you know, they will pay. That, well, they, they will. will not enough veterinarians in this profession doing what we do, right? Like you're, it's, it's supply and demand. And when you, everyone went out in all of these lockdowns and got pets. So pet ownership has skyrocketed and veterinary professionals has plummeted. So when you realize you can't get veterinary care, you will pay. I mean, I have people all the time now coming to our clinic at seven in the morning because I can't get into my vet clinic. So I'm paying your emergency fee for something that I don't need to see an emergency team for. But so I do think I think there the, that business side of it, which I'm not. I thankfully work with people who are business oriented. So uh, the business side of it. And I also think. There is the well-being side of it. It is not fair or appropriate or right to look at your um, staff member and say, yeah, I know you've worked 50, 60 hours this week, but I need you on Saturday anyway. No. So like, we have to address the pay disparity and yes. give people a beyond a livable wage, but a wage where they can actually prosper. Have you found that you will get paid when you demand to get paid? So, when you ask yeah. for the salary that you want to live on, you get it. When you tell the clients these were the fees, because like, I find so many people that will not ask for what they want or what they need. And two things with that, two things I do. So I absolutely in every interview talk about pay. And I say, we're going to talk about this because this is something people need to be more comfortable with. You need to make money, whether we talk about it or not, is going to be a discussion point for you and a deciding point. Let's talk about it. I do something with my new graduates. And this is a tip for any new graduates. I love it. This. I do something with my new graduates on purpose. And I I don't mean it to be a mind game. I mean it to be a growth because if I'm hiring you, I'm going to mentor you from the day you get hired, right? Mm-hmm. I will offer them on the contract. I send them less than I'm going to pay them purposefully. And Why? see what they because, do with it. Yeah. And whether, and it doesn't matter if they don't say anything, I'm not going to stick with that pay. So I don't, but I say this pay is less than you deserve. It's less than you. We talked about in the interview. Why did you not say can we talk about that? I love that. And oh, well, because I'm happy with that. No, that's not a what we talked about originally. And you have to get comfortable with asking what you're worth. You are worth more than this. This is what I'm actually going to pay you. And here's a copy of the real contract. And I didn't and I say I didn't do this with mess to mess with your head. I did this to teach you. You have to talk about money. You are you worth you might. And, and I talk about this with all of my staff. You know, we make these the pay is confidential. And I do believe the pay should be confidential for the reason, not for the reason that people think. So I believe pay should be confidential because you're not, you might not get paid what the nurse standing next to you is getting paid mm-hmm. or the vet standing next to you mm-hmm. because you might not be as great with clients. You might not be as good of a good team member. You might have less experience. It, it's a whole rash of things. Mm-hmm. I So it's confidential only in the sense that I don't, I don't care about my staff talking about pay. And I've told them this and I will say you'll be paid differently. If you weren't happy with that, then you come and talk to me and I can explain to you why. And if I can't explain why, then we need to be assessing why you're paid what you're paid because don't be afraid to talk about money because of that. But I do believe that that's probably part of the reason that I have never had an issue with pay because I'm always going to talk like we have to make money, right? There's nothing wrong with talking about it. It's a big right? portion no. of it. So you demystify it and, and you tell people, I think that's a great, um, I, uh, my, one of my first CEO jobs, uh, I, you know, I was making more money than I ever thought I would ever make. And I asked for a number, this was at I care for animals. And I asked for a number that, uh, was less than the current owner, the owners of the business at the time were willing to pay me. And it took him three years to tell me that. And I still had a great salary, but we sat down and I asked for a raise. And he said to me, he goes, you know, if you'd asked for this number in the beginning, I would have paid you that. Yep. And I learned that lesson the same way you did. I was like, yeah. I was like, I am never underballing, lowballing myself again. Yeah, why I tell them that's what is the worst that someone can say is no, and that's okay. But you, sh- we should be talking about it. So that's I do it to all of my new grads and all of my new mentors, and I'm like, and this is why not to mess with your head, but because you need to know if you were initially unhappy with that number, then you need to speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone might be able to respectfully and kindly point out why you're wrong and you're only worth that number, mm-hmm. but it's still your it's still you you have to speak up about it. 
No, I was just going to say, and what an interesting sort of moment for reflection on that doctor's part, because, you know, imagine you did talk in this interview about, oh, I'm going to make, you know, this position starts at hundred grand and you send a job offer for 90, 85, yep. even if they're, they made the conscious choice to not say something there is going to be subconscious resentment and frustration and feeling like a like right off the bat, we're on the wrong foot, you know? And so it's just sort of an interesting experiment, like for that person also to then reflect on why didn't I, and how do I develop that self-worth and that confidence to speak up? Um, I think that's a really valuable lesson. I, I love that. It's great. um, And I didn't, I, I mean, I've, even though previously in my role before this, I hired, well, in the role before that, I hired people, but I never had as much to do with how much we decide to pay them and how we pay them or why. And so when I started doing this, it's when I started, because I, I hire new grads regularly. Um, and so I started doing that because I was like this, and it didn't start with veterinary either. It started with a very good friend of mine was interviewing for a job and they sent him a contract. And I said, well, you need to ask for more money than that. He's mm-hmm. like, no, no, that's all I, that I'm happy with that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. ask for more than you even <laughs> want. Because if they pay you more, but it's less than that, you're still making more and it worked. And he now owns half of that business years yeah. later. So, and I'm just, it started with him actually. And then, then I transferred that to work. And I was just like, why are we uncomfortable about pay? It's like, mm-hmm. well, we work to get paid. So that I don't know why it's an argument. So what I'm hearing from you over and over again is that the you have an innate competence that came from a combination of how you were raised, your own personal genetics, and and all of that sort of stuff that that many people in veterinary medicine don't have. And what I what I say to people is if you didn't get that from your family by the time you were 18 years old, you're gonna have to learn it on your own in public, and it's gonna be hard and embarrassing. But veterinary medicine is one of the few places where you can be given the gift of self-development in the place that you work at. And so given that, as I think you believe that to be true as well. uh, So where do you see the industry in 10 years? Where do you see us going? Where where do you see, you know, these things are changing that we have been talking about? What is your prognosis for where the profession is going? I I wrote an open letter recently and sent it to a few of our, to a few of my like people I talk with and stuff like that. And it basically says it will get better. Because it's it's the in thirty odd years, it's definitely the worst I've seen it. You know, it's the worst as far as unhappiness and attrition rate. And I don't, I'm not saying that it wasn't already underlying for years and years. You know, you mm-hmm. said you've been talking about this in the '90s, but it's you know when it gets to a point that it's so openly bad that we know. Like, but for us as this profession to change it, we were going to have to pretty much hit rock bottom. You know, we weren't going to pay our staff what they should get paid or charge the client what they until they stop coming to work. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or charge the client appropriately because we have to pay those staff more. We weren't going to do that until we it was so bad. We looked around and said, I'll do anything. What do I do? And I we weren't going to change those things until that point. And, you know, for as much as people complain about all these new generate the new generation and what's wrong with them and how they do it wrong. They're actually going to be the drivers in this change. I think they're going to be the ones that, no, I'm not settling for that. Nope, I'm not doing that. And then we, the people who do recognize and want to change this profession, are going to adjust with them and because of them and um, because we want this profession to succeed. I think that we will lose a lot of people in this profession, older generation and younger generation. And that's okay. That's, I mean, that's not, mm-hmm. that's okay. Are there organizations out there that can help us bridge that gap? for support, you know? So I personally, one of my big things is I, and I mentioned this in that Ted talk is the fact that we don't work with human medicine enough. And the reason I say this is not just because of the respect issue I talked about there, but knowing that it's not just you. Knowing they've already invented the wheel for most of this. Exactly. (laughs) But knowing these struggles you have, oh, it's, you know what? It's not just me that I feel that way. Every vet around me feels that way or, All these human doctors that we think are the pinnacle of medical professions, they feel the same way we do. They They have high suicide rates and addiction rates as well. I'm like, why don't we know, like, why don't we, knowing that there are other people who feel that way, like we feel imposter syndrome because we don't talk about it. If you sat in a room with a bunch of specialists who also said that they felt like that sometime, you think, oh, maybe I'm not Mm -hmm. so bad. Just that normalization of the things we go through as medical professionals. And so I think I think that we should absolutely be working with other medical professionals 
even not just because our medicine and their medicine can be made so much better by learning from each other, but so that it normalizes some of the things we go through as medical professionals and uh, we learn how to deal with them. They have coping mechanisms or even not coping mechanisms as much because theirs are just as bad as ours. But mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, they're required after an adverse event to have counseling. They're required yes. to see, to actually have their own version of therapy. They're, mm-hmm. you know, set times. They're required to do peer mm-hmm. review sessions. We don't do any of those things. No, we're highly unregulated at so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. We do a great job with, but you know what I say, and it's anecdotal, but it is, I always say that, you know, veterinarians, you train, like you only use about 2% of what you're trained for in terms of the people come back to you over and over for the same 2% of stuff. And so I think their fantasy is I'm going to use all this wild science. Well, you needed to use that to qualify, to be able to talk about the basic science over and over and over again. So we need to prepare them for, it's not this fantasy of an ivory tower of intellect. It is down and dirty, managing people's feelings almost all day long. And then I think we need to do, and this is just my opinion, we need to do specific training in emotional intelligence and conflict resolution. And and, and I'm curious, do you believe that EQ is ripe for veterinary medicine? Unquestionably. I think anybody who has been in this well-being space of veterinary medicine knows that. And so Massey University is the vet school here in New Zealand. And I have participated in several studies that one of their, Stuart Gordon, one of their professors has done several of them because he is very much interested in this and working on this. And one of them is communication. So I did a study with him about communication and about adverse events, two different Mm -hmm. things. And one of them was finding that basically the, the people in this profession that seem to be more successful than others have either developed or innate skills in communication, our ability to talk to each other and to talk to clients, which no one teaches communication. We don't even talk about communication being part of our role, we do right? VGP. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, so that's the thing. We So communication. And then the other one is we're very good. And then I stay, I have, I have a dual thought process on this, but we remember all of the bad things. It, we remember all of the mistakes we make, but we do not remember all of the good things that we do. And so um, I, I remember those bad things because I learned from them, but I don't, it, I think there's a balance there, but um, we, and he's right. We don't talk about, you know, yes, you have to be intelligent scientifically and you have to have learned all this technical skill and you spend all this time and we are really intelligent in what we've had to learn, but that's not what you're showing to the client. Can you stand in a room when four kids are screaming because you're putting their pet to sleep and the dad is angry and the mom is bawling and like that has nothing to do with your technical ability to know why or how you just euthanized the patient. So um, I do believe that EQ, we have to start. I mean, this is what clinics are doing, you know, personality training and or personality testing and where do you fit in the team and that's but it's still so young really it it breaks my heart a little bit but it also makes me grateful that you know for 30 years i was probably not maybe 10 years of that time but it's kind of the only person doing this (laughs) and felt that way and so now we have you know whole groups of people and and segments of the industry that are focused on eq and training Uh, i want to give you time to address something you brought up a couple of times and i think it's important and you have a unique perspective what do we need to do with the clients and awareness? You know, like how I, I believe that we need to train our clients a little bit better. And I was, I was going on about like, you don't go to a Ritz Carlton hotel without a complete understanding of what is going to be expected of you and what's expected of the hotel and how much that's going to cost yet still in veterinary medicine. It is like buyer beware. You can walk in the door of a Taj Mahal facility and get crappy medicine and bad service and you can walk into a place that smells like cat pee and, and get great medicine. I mean, it's, 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 I, I, I have tried to break through this. We have tried to break through this, but we still struggle a little bit with how do we train the people to train the clients. But it, it circles back around to what we were talking about boundaries, right? So unless you, you set boundaries about a yourself, then how are you going to set boundaries for your clinic or your staff? And so, but we do it with pets and children. We're doing it less in this day and age, which I think is part of the problem. But we set, we <laughs> tell them what is acceptable yes. and what's unacceptable. You know, your dog chewing on your coffee table is unacceptable. So in whatever means it is that you tell them that's unacceptable, you tell them. And so there are things that you have to decide in your practice, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And you have to follow through with that. It's not, oh, I understand you are really emotional about coffee. And so it's okay that you acted that way. 
I mean, I do believe there's a little bit of leeway. Absolutely. There can be empathy um, with a confrontation. Absolutely. Exactly. But there is there's a line that you say this isn't acceptable. And I don't think that just your clients see that. I think your staff sees that, that you're protecting them and taking care of them. And then they know that they can set boundaries. So um, and and I say this, I think some people, you know, this is where that honesty thing comes in. You start to set boundaries that aren't realistic with each other. And that's fine, but we're not talking about that. So I think, you know, what is allowed from clients matters too. And we do a poor job of selling ourselves, right? Like why, why should we make the money to do this? Why should we charge you for this? Well, because we're really good at it and you can't do it yourself. That's why, like, why, you know, if, if oh, I could have done it myself, well, then why'd you come to see me? Like I don't have to uh, like, and it's something we've worked on here is those aren't the clients I want back either. So I don't care if they get angry. I joke in my lectures all the time about, you know, I've complained about hotels. I've complained about airlines. I've complained and they never give me my money back. (laughs) You know, even when I ask for it, they often say, no, that is not our policy. I'm sorry. This happens. You're going to have to deal and 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 get over it and and try and find another airline if you're not happy with this one or or and what happens is you end up finding that you didn't get treated so shoddily you got kind of treated the way the system is and you just don't like what the result was <laughs> or you got treated that way because of how you acted yes. in, in in our setting and i don't think we and i hate to say it in this way because i don't mean it in confrontational but we don't fight back enough and i'm going to use an example so i don't know if you guys have seen or heard somewhat going viral about maine veterinary medical center so they I have seen that. Yes, yes. Yep. So and this is I have and I have worked with our marketing quite a bit because I have an issue when a really bad review goes on. And if it's we should we can learn, right? Like our ability to like I said about humbling. If someone has a negative review, there might be pieces of that in there that you can learn. Well, and grow it. It's like take, take the take what go through it. Safe and grain, right? Go through it and see what is valid and what you can learn from and you throw the rest away. But like with Maine Veterinary Medical Center, you know what? No, I'm going to actually respond to this and I'm going to say why you are incorrect and that is not appropriate or fair. And we need more of that. There are always two sides to a story and we never tell our side because why would we? We know in our hearts we're doing the right thing, right? We know that we're doing it. Why? Well, because the public needs to see it, because our staff needs to hear it, because other vet clinics who might have suffered the same thing need to hear it. I can't applaud them enough because I think we need more of this. Yeah. And if you don't know what that is, it's a it's a, a clinic that just clap back. Basically, a lot of things you said in your TED talk too. just, you know, we put up with this, 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 and we don't need to put up with you. <laughs> how would you define, how did you define being a successful veterinarian when you first started? And how would you define being a successful veterinarian now if, if they've changed? So I think this is what makes me a bit of an outlier. Like you mentioned before, my goal from the Day one has been to make animals' lives better. That's it. My goal still today is to make animals' lives better. And I, it's funny that I am now in this wellness space quite a bit because as much as I love my staff, they come second to the patient for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I clear think, about that. But and I think that's probably why to me I do feel successful. But but in the same sense, if it is so important that I love and it truly is my heart to make animals' lives better, well. If your staff isn't okay, your animals aren't okay. So mm-hmm. it is very like right following my animals is the staff, and it's and clients are after that even because mm-hmm. if your staff isn't ha- happy and healthy, then your the animals under care aren't going to be. So if you take care of your staff, then ultimately those animals will be. I think my uh, I, my measure of success has always been making animals' lives better, and it's pretty simple, I know, but that's all it's really been. And I think that potentially that's why I still feel successful. Yeah. What would you tell your, if you go back in time and give yourself some career advice uh, as you're just starting out, what would you tell yourself now that you know that you didn't know 30 years ago? What I didn't, I think, well, I think there's probably two things. I think that what I didn't know 30 years ago that I would tell them is this is a hard job, like Mm -hmm. I mentioned, but it's not bad that it's a hard job. Like I've said several times. Normalizing that it's difficult. Yeah, Yeah, I've said, you know, we are saving and ending lives. It should not be easy. It is hard. That's why we're such an amazing profession and such a loved profession. But do your research and understand why it's hard. Know why it's hard. Be honest with yourself if you can deal with it. So I think that's probably what I would tell myself 30 years ago. But 
I think telling people in and now, like, remember why you started. Majority of us went in this profession because it's friggin' amazing. So <laughs> why did you, why did you love it then? And why don't you love it now? And ha- that hasn't changed. I still 30 some odd years later will walk in and be like, I just don't want to be here today and see a pug. And I'll say a pug because it's happened recently. You know, Solomon was like, he's just the coolest pet. And I was like, this is why I do this. This remember why you started and get back to that. And how do you protect that? Because that's what the value is. Absolutely. Sage words for our listeners. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I just wanted to thank Shalzi for coming on here and chatting with us and also for putting this podcast out there. Like you said, one of the biggest things is about public education. And so I not only want all of our listeners to watch it, but yours is preaching to the choir for our industry. So if, yeah. you're, if you are watching Shalzi's uh, TEDx talk, Obesely Business, please put it on your social media, put it on your Facebook, show your friends, show your family, because that is going to be like, I mean, when we were talking about what are you going to do for public education? I mean, you did it. There's not a bigger stage out there for you to send a message on behalf of our struggling industry. And so I want to thank you for doing that and for being here and sharing your wisdom. Um, So just as a reminder, we will be doing this every month and um, please definitely follow Shalzi on all the social medias on TEDx. And thank you again for being with us. This was really wonderful. You can also in New Zealand or anywhere, if you go to vgpvet.com, you can get an example of all of the programs that we offer to support many of the things that we were talking about in this podcast. And this won't go in the public, but I'll put it out there. Um, Rachel and I would love to come to New Zealand. We'll just do a little program on emotional <laughs> intelligence too. Absolutely. That would be Seriously, wonderful. Put a group of people together. Uh, it, we, you know, it's, we live for kind of opportunities like that. So uh, we're already doing and providing tools so we'd love to have some kiwis come over or we come over there and introduce you guys to what we're doing yeah we're i absolutely i'm i'm definitely want to continue it for sure so great yeah well thank you and continued success thanks so much for all you do for the profession thank you everybody and uh by the way if you know somebody that in your life is a success story in veterinary medicine. And I really mean this. It could be a kennel worker. It could be the person who cleans your hospital. Uh, It it can be the best client that comes through the door who's an animal advocate, Uh, a success story in your neighborhood. Uh, Those are the kind of stories that we're looking for. And so I don't think we're going to have any shortage uh, of uh, candidates, but I'm always interested to hear what you think of when we say who's a success in your life what's going on in their vet med mind <laughs>